0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two
0: with Larissa Barrett, It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio.
2: We see this as an Aboriginal issue and I think that's really great in terms of we're putting Aboriginal people first and foremost in the discussion, but it's a community issue. It's an Australian issue. I think when we have something like the Makarrata, where you have Aboriginal people as a community coming to the table and saying we want to move forward, I think that changes how we view each other as a community, that we're not just adversarial all the time. I think we're coming into a conversation looking at
3: governance and looking at policy and what is the future for our country from a place of love, This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Each year, the Jesse Street Trust celebrates the remarkable life and values of the late Jesse Street as a vocal advocate for women's rights in the early 1900s, she led a lifelong campaign for justice for the disenfranchised. In 1956, Jessie Street took up the fight for recognition of Indigenous Australians and was instrumental in the constitutional changes of 1967. Established in 1988, each year the Jessie Street Trust continues to honour her legacy by promoting projects that reflect the issues she championed. They include campaigns for peace and disarmament and the elimination of discrimination. This year, the Trust played host to an online forum in which it asked of the Uluru Statement from the heart, where are we now and where to from here? Since its delivery to the Federal Government three years ago, debate around the Uluru Statement has largely focused on the first of three elements, those of voice, truth and treaty. Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, favours a legislated Indigenous voice to Parliament rather than enshrining it in the Constitution, and he hopes his proposal will pass Parliament ahead of the next election. It comes as a number of states and territories are making significant inroads on developing Indigenous treaties within their own jurisdictions. So what is the likelihood of success, and what are the challenges that remain? These questions were a focus of the virtual discussion which I was privileged to facilitate. Joining the conversation were Federal Labor MP and Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services, Linda Burney, and actor and playwright, Nakia Louie. Let's listen in now as the Chair of the Jessie Street Trust, Liz Broderick, introduces the discussion with a touching tribute.
1: Jessie was an activist, a feminist, and a lifelong campaigner for women's rights but she also cared deeply about the elimination of discrimination against Aboriginal people. So when we thought about a topic for tonight, uh, we at the top of our list was raising awareness of the Uluru statement, and also a greater understanding amongst all of us as to where it's heading and what we can do to support. But just a little bit more about Jesse, as you would know, Jesse was one of the original 15 members of the UN's Commission on the Status of Women. And I know quite a number of you travel to New York each year into the Commission on the Status of Women. It was this commission which ensured that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights stood as an affirmation of the dignity and worth of the human person and in equal rights of men and women. So Jessie, working with other women, ensured that the charter of the UN, which promoted human rights without distinction based on race, language, and religion, also included the word sex. She was the first Australian on the UN Commission on the Status of Women. But coming back to our cause tonight, Jessie, who returned from overseas in 1956, championed the cause of Indigenous Australians. She encouraged the formation of a national organization in support of Aboriginal advancement, and she worked on gaining an amendment to the Australian constitution that would remove discriminatory references to Aboriginal people. Following vigorous campaigning by Jessie and many others, and particularly Indigenous Australians, her suggested amendments were eventually carried into the 1967 referendum, which amended the Australian constitution to enable Aboriginal people to be counted as citizens in the census. So in the 1967 referendum, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were counted. And in this 2017, Uluru Statement from the Heart, they need to be heard. So we're three years on from the Uluru Statement and this is such a brilliant opportunity for every one of us to hear from three exceptional women Women whom Jessie would have been proud to stand in solidarity with. Women who are campaigning to ensure that not just the messages, but that the action envisaged in this nationally significant document will empower Aboriginal people so that they might take their rightful place in their own country and that that becomes a lived reality. So to take us and guide us through the conversation, can I introduce to you Professor Larissa Burant AO, who will host our online discussion tonight with Linda Burney and Nakia Louie. Over to you, Larissa. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for such a lovely
3: introduction. It's my really great pleasure to be involved with the event tonight. I've done a few things with the Jessie Street Trust and I'm really aware of her legacy and the good work that she did. And I'm also incredibly excited to have two of my favourite um, voices in Indigenous Australia here tonight, Who, both women who are so accomplished. And I should start with the Honourable Linda Burney and also say that she's a Wiradjuri woman, Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services and for Preventing Family Violence in the Federal Parliament. She was also the first Aboriginal person to serve in the New South Wales Parliament in 2003. She also trained as a teacher and helped to create the first ever Aboriginal education policy in New South Wales, which set the template going forward for standards for Indigenous education across Australia. And as many of you would know, Linda was very, very involved with the AECG setting that up. I think it's a really important thing to remember that although Linda's been quite a trailblazer within the parliament, she started in policy at the grassroots, doing really strong community work with our community controlled organisations, really establishing the AECG in New South Wales as a force. And she has also, of course, been an important force within the reconciliation movement through the period of the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Linda was incredibly active. Then, you know, through the Howard era, she remained really strongly focused on the importance of reconciliation, keeping that agenda alive, working again with local reconciliation groups. So her vast experience covers many angles in which she's been a real force for change. So Couldn't have somebody better than her. But equally important, one of the most important voices to have emerged in recent years, I think, is Nakia Louie, a Gamilaroi Torres Strait Islander woman. At 29, she's a writer, a comedian, and is really emerging as a leader in the Indigenous community. From 2012 to 2014, she was playwright in residence for Sydney's Belvoir Theatre, and in 2013, she was the artist in residence for Griffin Theatre. Uh, She's been a co-writer on television of numerous things, including black comedy, and has been a columnist for the Australian Women's Weekly. But I think one of her real strengths has also been, um, as you can see, she's really broken into the mainstream, being a real trailblazer in terms of our voices in performance and theatre and on screen. Uh, She wrote and starred in the politically disarming play with the Sydney Theatre Company, How to Rule the World, in 2019. But this followed on from some really provocative plays, including the first thing that I saw that Nakia had written and performed Kill the Messenger and I knew at the time we were seeing a bold new voice and she hasn't disappointed. I think the really important thing about Nakia's work is that she really holds a mirror up to Australian society and does it in that way that I think our storytelling does best with a lot of humour and a really big bite to it as well. So I should also add that Nakia uh, has a new Audible Originals podcast, which she hosts with Miranda Tapsell, who many of you might know has been Nakia's partner in crime on many occasions. The podcast is called Debutante Race Resistance and Girl Power, and it strikes up conversations about race, feminism and politics for a whole new generation. So if you're not familiar with it, you really need to check it out. So I thought we would start, given the wealth of experience and knowledge that both our our panellists bring to the topic and the themes within the Uluru Statement, to talk about what the concepts of voice, truth and treaty mean to them. So I might start with you, Linda, and I, I have allowed a little bit of time because these are big questions and you've done a lot of work on this topic.
4: Thanks, Larissa. That was incredibly generous and hello to Nakia, Larissa has asked about the concepts of voice, truth and treaty, which of course are at the heart of the Uluru Statement. So the Uluru Statement, everyone, says three things. It says that there should be a constitutionally enshrined voice of Aboriginal people to the parliament. It says that there should be a a Makarada Commission established to oversee agreement and treaty-making. And it also says there should be a national process of truth-telling. And Larissa spoke about, or Liz spoke about, Jesse Street's involvement in the sixty-seven referendum, and this will give away my age a bit, but I was 10 years old in 1967, so this is not ancient history. Those three concepts, or those three notions, are really fundamental to all of our understanding about Uluru. To me, and Larissa's touched on it, the notion of truth-telling is something that I think probably has guided most of my life, using the educational systems in this country as a vehicle to tell the truth and teach the truth to everyone. And truth is the truth of this country's story that I think more and more people are becoming interested in, wanting to know about or do know about. And the amazing thing about truth, Larissa, it is within everyone's power to possess and get that truth. But truth is also important to the broader Australian community in understanding history, and in bringing us together. And that's what the concept of truth-telling is for me. In terms of treaty and agreement-making, it seems to me that with the establishment of voice, that is a vehicle to negotiate a national treaty with. There isn't one at the moment. And a treaty is a settlement, and it can be about many things. And there are many treaty processes already going on in Australia at the moment. Queensland's got the very beginnings of one, Northern Territory is committed, and uh, Victoria is on the way. Until there was a change of government in South Australia, there was a process, but that's just sitting there. Um, There's a commitment from New South Wales Labor to enter into a treaty with New South Wales, First Nations people when government changes, which inevitably it does. So treaty to me, Larissa, is really about an agreement. And if it's with the federal government, it's obviously about issues to do with the issues that federal government deals with. They're really big things like, like tax and money and land and you know social security and a whole range of things. But essentially, it is about recognition. So, I hope that explains to people uh, why those fundamental things in Uluru are very important. And what astounds me, and I'd be really interested in people's feedback on this, and I'd like your view and Nakia's view, Larissa, is that when I was on the Insiders Program on Sunday with Ken Wyatt, and the question was put to him, well, why doesn't the government support a constitutionally enshrined voice. His basic answer was, well, if there's a constitutional change, there has to be a referendum. And what if that's referendums is lost? Um, And I just think that's a nonsense answer. And the idea of a constitutionally enshrined voice is fundamental to what Uluru basically
3: said. I'll turn over to you now, Nakia, to give your perspectives on those big themes and, and follow up with some of the things that Linda's put on the table already. Um, Yeah, and I just want to say thank you for the um, lovely introduction,
2: Larissa, and thank you so much for having me and everyone involved. I'll be try and be quick but I'm, I'm super uh, humbled to be part of this discussion so hopefully I can I'm a little bit I just want to listen to be honest but it's a really big question I was thinking about this because I was on the Q&A panel in Canberra the day that the Uluru statement was announced and it was the same day that uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Barnaby Joyce and their government put a stop mm. to it pretty much and it felt like on the night it felt like I remember feeling it was like because we dared to dream it was if we doomed ourselves Like it was somehow the Aboriginal community's fault because we had asked for too much. So I was thinking about that and what, you know, 2017 to to 2020 today, what does the, what is the resonance of the Uluru Statement and what does it mean? I think in terms of an Indigenous voice, you know, I've, uh, my parents are community workers. I've seen the uh, effects of, The work that you've done, Larissa, and and you, Linda Burney, um, at BAG, you know, helped me go to my school in Canada. I wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for those communities. So for two things, I think in terms of an enshrined voice to parliament, even within my life, you know, I'm a young woman. I've seen Aboriginal issues being continually used as political point scoring and you see community whether it be uh you, like schemes mechanisms that are put in place to try and achieve equality you see that dismantled when there's a change of governance you know and unfortunately the thing about equity is that it requires work and it requires you know it takes a long time to to create equality and so when you're continuously seeing structures and mechanisms that are put in place being taken down and pulled apart I think that that has a huge negative effect. Also Aboriginal people are accountable to Aboriginal people that's why when you see like programs in our communities where you have seen the most uh, positive impactful change those have been things that have been led by aboriginal people you know it's really really hard to try and negotiate change within a power structure that disadvantages you if there isn't a fair negotiation and so if you're having to feel lucky that you have a place at the table because at any moment someone could take your chair and kick you off then how are you ever going to negotiate within that i think for me when we're looking at a constitutionally and try trying and voice to parliament, that's so incredibly important. When it comes to the maturata, and this is where I was thinking about this, and there's this saying, um, I think my dad told it to me, and it was communities can't have a future if they don't know their past. And I think, within, you know, especially in 2020, where conversations and politics and values have become so adversarial. You know, we're almost kind of living in a post-truth world in a way. The idea of knowing what our past is, the idea of having a history that shows different perspectives is incredibly needed in order for for our community to move into the future. And I think, you know, a Makarata will do that. It's a truth-telling ceremony. It's a forgiveness ceremony. You know, we need to be able to tell our truth without being told that it's a Black Armband history without having our perspective immediately dismissed. And I think especially this year, in a year that's been so tough for so many people, where we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, come like all around the world. When we said people, you know, I, I don't think it really kind of matters about what you, how you feel about statutes, but where you're seeing people tear down statutes because they don't feel their voices are being heard within, I guess, a mainstream narrative. I think it's really important that we're able to, have these mechanisms and conversations where we do have formalised structures where people can get heard and where we aren't, Mm -hmm. you know, truth-telling doesn't become about political point scoring. And also in saying that with the Macarada, you know, I think, you know, faith without work is pretty much dead faith in a way. And what we need to be prepared for, I think, with the Uluru Statement is that it's really just a step towards creating change. We don't know what the answer is and it's not one solution fits all. But, um, I was just thinking about what then the future looks like. And I think we see this as an Aboriginal issue. And I think that's really great in terms of we're putting Aboriginal people first and foremost in the discussion, but it's a community issue. It's an Australian issue. I think when we have something like the Makarrata, where you have Aboriginal people as a community coming to the table and saying, we want to move forward. I think that changes how we view each other as a community, that we're not just adversarial all the time. I think we're coming as cheesy as this is, it's coming into a conversation, looking at governance and looking at policy and what is the future for our country from a place of love, you know, and I I think that's a value change that has a huge impact on everybody in this country, especially people who, because of their identity, whether that be because they're women, their age, their sex, their race, if they have any type of marginalisation because of who they are, I think that's an incredibly important context in which we try to, achieve equality.
3: Linda, my next question was to you and it was following up a little bit about uh, giving us a snapshot of what you saw as the level of political support for the Uluru statement and while I'd originally conceived this as asking about that in terms of where the political parties stand, it would be also great to hear your reflections having been you know, working on those reconciliation issues with the community for such a long period of time, whether you're seeing that broader change within the community that, um, you know, that perhaps is underestimated? Look,
4: I think this is a really important question, the level of political support for Uluru, and this is where the Jesse Street Trust and people on the Zoom can be so important and so helpful, is that, I am very, very worried at the moment. The only party that fully supports the Uluru Statement in its entirety is, in fact, the Labor Party. Uh, The Greens have somehow changed their view. It's very confusing as to what they're saying. They seem at sixes and sevens with the argument that somehow treaty should come first and the voice is not so important, which I'm not too worried about. What I am really worried about is that the government of the day has totally walked away from the Uluru statement and Nakia Nik- spoke about being on Q&A on the night that that happened when it was, you know, the voice was painted as a, as a third chamber and all the rest of that rubbish. And the other thing is that the three working groups that Ken Wyatt has established to suggest a model to the parliament for a voice, their terms of reference explicitly said they could not deal with the Uluru statement. So uh, where we're at from my understanding is that the minister's aspiration, and I use that word advisedly, aspiration, is to have legislation for a voice to the government and not to the parliament and not constitutionally enshrined but a legislated voice to the government hopefully in the house as a piece of legislation before the next election and the latest it could possibly do that everyone is probably august but i am worried that nothing will happen so I, I just reiterate that at the Labor Party's commitment is absolutely to the Uluru Statement, but there is no other political support at the federal level
3: at all. Did you also want to comment, Linda, on what you've seen in terms of the broader engagement across sure. the Australian community?
4: Yeah, look, my experience, and I know Nikia will probably comment on this as well, is that there is enormous support and a great deal of understanding in the broader community for the Uluru Statement. And I'm talking about local people. I'm talking about local branches. I'm talking about academia. I'm talking about organisations like Jesse Street. I'm talking about a whole range of civil society groups like ACOS and so forth that are absolutely supportive of the including many faith groups larissa which i think is very important and the other thing that's happening is that you go into schools and schools know what you're talking about and they're really interested in particularly from an educational perspective that concept of truth telling and just how important that is for the future of australia
3: You've just heard Federal Labor MP and Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services, Linda Burney. You've also been listening to actor and playwright, Nakia Louie. They were speaking at a recent online forum hosted by the Jesse Street Trust, which posed the question of the Uluru Statement from the heart, where are we currently at and where to from here?
0: Speaking out with
3: Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berend, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. We'll return to our panel discussion on the Uluru Statement from the Heart shortly, but right now some music. Here is Coloured Stone with Waiting for the Tide. coloured stone with Waiting for the Tide. Let's hear more from the panel now and we pick up the conversation with Nakia Louie, reflecting on the importance of truth-telling and the central role that Indigenous storytelling brings to the process of reconciliation.
2: So I think when I first started writing on black comedy, which was in 2013, and one of the reasons I became a writer, I guess one of the the reasons I became a writer, a little bit about my origin story might answer this a little bit is I started writing after my grandmother who grew up in a housing commission home in St. Mary's. She had really bad white termites and the termites ate away at the house. And eventually what happened was my grandmother fell through the floor and she went to hospital and she never came back after that. She passed away not long after. And I took a year off uni to help care for her. The reason I bring that up is for me, you know, I thought I was going to be this, uh, I guess, this amazing lawyer. I was a terrible law student. So I was no, you. Um, so it's really great that, you know, I didn't end up there. I, I always like stories more. But um, I wrote a play because I saw the bureaucratic institutions and I got so frustrated with it because in my, to me, I couldn't even help my nan. And so after she passed away, I... I I wrote a play which sounds really silly but um I wrote my first play which was This Heaven in 2013 and then the play after that was Kill the Messenger and I remember uh, and the reason I bring this up is I wrote this play and I ended up putting myself in it and the play ended up being about the passing of my nan and it was at Belvoir Theatre in 2015 and I remember standing there in front of the audience and it ended up being I think my, my final words to them and it was um, how do I make you care and that's always been at the heart of my writing is is how do you make people care with black comedy how do we make people care about aboriginal people and maybe it's through laughter maybe it's through saying we're not the tragic figure that is constantly represented you know on television so often when we see aboriginal people represented in mainstream media that sounded quite champion. I didn't mean it like that I look it's kind of creeped that's way into my vocabulary but uh a lot of representations of aboriginal people seem to be quite extreme you know they see us uh, excelling you know, we're the, the first Aboriginal person to do something or where are the, um, you know, the exception to the rule or we're tragic. There's very little in between. So I look at my career uh, and the work that I've got to do, which I've got to do some really silly stuff on black comedy and jet cracking. And I look at the privilege of doing that and I think, well, people wouldn't be listening if they didn't care. People wouldn't be engaging with my work. And I'm quite, you know, vocal about the fact that I'm an Aboriginal woman with my work. That's the lens that I see everything through. I think it's part of what makes me a good writer. I think so much when we view equality, we we see it as erasing things that make us different, whereas I think it should be kind of inclusive and celebratory of that. But uh, I think that, you know, I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for, I think, you know, Australia's interest and willingness to engage with Aboriginal communities. I think the Aboriginal community is really really like uh, wants something to get done. Listening to you speak Linda, talking about you know I, I watched that Insiders panel, hearing Ken Wyatt talk, you get really frustrated because you know the Uluru Statement it's consultation process was historic and you're like what do we need to do to be listened to? You know yes Aboriginal people may, may not all agree but those voices who don't agree are integral to the process Mm. being democratic and inclusive. And I think as an Aboriginal person, we're just hungry for something to, to open the door. And I think the Australian community is too. And what I find incredibly frustrating is that these aspirations to change are so kind of constantly tampered. They're tampered by political reality, you know, and it feels like we're being fed this idea that uh, you're asking for too much and you know when you like hearing what you just said now and and hearing about that consultation from from the Uluru statement all those aboriginal people around australia who who went who engaged to disagree the fact that their voices can't be taken into account you know going forward to me that's completely dismissive and incredibly frustrating especially with the Uluru statement was it was so incredibly articulate and thorough and i think that was you know just from um, my perspective as a writer and as a you know getting on the old Blackfella Twitter there was a community member, people are really, really hungry on both sides, you know, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. And I think, you know, the narrative that that change is very hard to achieve and complicated, and I think purposely it's made very complicated um, at times versus the narrative that we're hearing from our communities, they're getting further and further apart.
3: Linda, I just wonder if we could bring you in on this point because... Obviously, there are huge barriers being put up at the national level, but you mentioned earlier that there had actually been treaty processes started in several states, and I don't think you mentioned the fact that they had all been initiated by Labor governments, but that's That's the case. (laughs) And I wonder if you could reflect on the on what that might mean in terms of um, the fact that there is work being done at the state level, as you said. Sometimes, as in South Australia, the government changed and it sort of stalled. But there is still a momentum and a discussion. From your perspective, is that the opening of the door that Nakia was referring to? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a number
4: of treaty processes uh, well underway in a number of states and territories all initiated by Labor governments, and perhaps that says something. We don't have to please the (laughs) Nats, put it that way. And I also think that it's more about partnership and the, the values of the party that I represent. But one of the really interesting things, Larissa, that I hadn't thought about was well, I listened to a talk by Mick Dodson who is one of the treaty commissioners up there in Northern Territory. And he spoke about the Aboriginal community being treaty ready. Now we hear the rhetoric all the time, our treaty now, we want a treaty. And yes, we want treaties and treaty. But if you think about places like British Columbia and some other places throughout Canada in particular, It took some of those communities 12 or 13 years to be treaty ready. And I look very much at Victoria and they are three years into the process and they have just in the last six or eight months elected the body that will negotiate with the government. And when you talk to people in Victoria, they talk about being treaty ready as well. So a treaty is complex, it's complicated. Uh, You would be able to speak with much more eloquence eloquence than me. But it's not something that you can do overnight and it's a journey. But part of the LaRue didn't just say, it it actually didn't mention the word treaty, I think. As Nakia said, it's a beautiful document. It's an elegant document and it's a modest document. And the ask are modest and the idea that they spoke about in Uru was agreement making and there of course there are a number of agreements already in place around Australia including the Noongar agreement in Western Australia I think there's one as the Larrakia up in Northern Territory so it's not that we don't have experience and it's not that we don't have capacity it's about really understanding what we're talking about when we say treaty it can be as something as simple as place names and and sharing of national parks or something as complicated as tax law so there has to be a body to negotiate a treaty with and that's why the voice is so important i hope that makes sense
3: no, that's great. And, and I always love that really important reminder that aggressive colonisation has taken place since 1788, and we're expected to do the work to heal it in 12 months. <laughs> <That's> it. <laughs> always a really good reminder. And, uh, and Nikia, I guess one thing I wanted to just draw out your work, as you say, particularly something like Kill the Messenger, very much from your own experience and your family's experience with systemic racism. And I wonder from your perspective, how you see the connection between the big ideas in the Uluru statement and those really practical issues, systemic racism, deaths in custody, you know, overrepresentation in the criminal justice system. I know that's a big question too, but I wonder if you had a few thoughts around that.
2: Yeah, I have I have a few. Um, I'll try and be concise. You know, it was when the Uluru statement came out, um, I asked my parents, like in twenty seventeen when they um, announced it, I asked my parents, um, I actually found the notes from my phone today. I asked them about nineteen sixty-seven. And um both my parents were uh twelve at the time. Um, I asked my mum if she could remember anything about it, and she said no. <laughs> uh, my dad said he felt excluded because he was taken out of art class to do some art, probably for cultural awareness, he said as a bit of a joke. Uh, but I thought about my parents, and my mum lived in a tent for a huge part of her life. My dad didn't use a toilet until he was eight. My grandparents had dog tags to say that they could be honorary white people. My family are very accomplished people, but they've had to work really hard, and and my sister and I have had you know, we have a lot of privilege because they're hard work. And I think that's from cultural shifts. A cultural shift has enabled the hard work of my family to pay off. Um, the reason I bring up cultural shifts is I do think that, you know, very much speaking to what you're saying Linda Bernie is that you know treaties and the political discussions and the legislation can be very very complicated but the actual the cultural shift that can happen within a community if we do go Mm -hmm. forward if if, let's say they did take on the Uluru Statement and we did have a Makarata um, and we did you know even just begin to engage with that conversation that symbolic change that's not just empty symbolic change it's important symbolic change because it changes the culture of our society and so I hope that that makes sense. I think that that's very, very important when it comes to equality. I was thinking about what equality is and what equity is in terms of these big ideas, specifically speaking to the Uluru Statement and, um, you know, kind of what equity is. And, you know, it's so much about having value and opportunity, you know, having uh, equal privilege amongst everyone and not, not having a disadvantage because of your circumstance or your identity. But I also think it's feeling like you have value in society, it's feeling as if your voice matters. And I think that's really important within a community to feel like you, that that you as an individual have something to contribute, that you matter and that your voice matters. So I think in terms of that, that's huge. And I, I look at my community, you know, our suicide rate is, especially within youth suicide is higher than ever before. Children, the, the rate of removal has, has increased. The disadvantage of the Aboriginal community can be so profound and they can feel like there's no comfort it's this doomed crusade but i think telling someone that they have value is such a small but important step you know i think that can very much have a huge impact on someone's life and at the moment as we try and negotiate to just even have a seat at the table you know something like the uluru statement aboriginal people there is no kind of current Conversation within, without, with our current government that we're able to engage with to try and create some type of change. I think that institutionalized racism is just such a, a huge issue, but we need to be a part of the conversation. So I think in, in that way, these you know something like the Uluru statement. Although, again, you know, there are some Aboriginal people who don't agree, there are, you know, we're, we're surprised we're, we're different and diverse, you know, opinions within my family are different as to what we should do and go forward. But I think, you know, being able to engage in the conversation that Aboriginal people, Aboriginal individuals have value in this society, that we're not nothing, that we deserve to be here, that this isn't a country that's trying to erase us and as us that has an impact on the individual. I think that's incredibly
3: important. I'm mindful of the time, and I I did want to give Linda a chance to respond to what is obviously a difference between her and uh, Ken White's position on why constitutional recognition and inclusion is important. And I might do that by also including a question from the audience about the 67 referendum. It's a two-parter, Linda. That's your first. The second part, 67 referendum. Can you talk to the things that meant that it was a success that we should learn from going forward?
4: I think it's what Nakia was saying, Larissa, is that the power of something like 67 and the power of recognition, some people will say, and Ken tried to run this argument out last week, oh, it's not going to change anything on the ground for Aboriginal people. It's not going to mean any more health workers or houses or whatever. But it's what Nakia was saying, and that is that it it helps you walk taller. It makes a proper place for our people. And the thing that I argue very strongly is that, and I think people are hungry to hear this now, is that what we bring to the Australian story is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. It's ancient and it's rich and it explains things and... And that's something that I want everyone to share in and be proud of. And it just seems to me that constitutional recognition is one such thing. It's it's like, you know, in 67 we were counted, in 2017 we want to be heard. And that's out of the Uluru Statement. And to me that is the most powerful part of that statement because it draws what Jessie was involved with to what Nakia's and myself and you are involved in. And it's, a, it's an Australian endeavour. It's what Nakia said. It's, it's the whole community endeavour and it's something that we can all be part of. It's not just blackfella business. It's not adversarial. And I hope Ken's successful, but I am terribly afraid that there will be forces evil forces that won't allow it to happen but
3: it's inevitable it's inevitable Thank you. And I'm almost out of time and have to hand back to, I'll be handing over to Tanya actually. But Nakia, I just want to squeeze in one more question just quickly. Linda touched on this earlier. I just wondered what your thoughts were on what our allies can do to support the political ambitions of our people. And also it's a two-parter because there's a great audience question about how we could best be expanding truth-telling and engagement with students and school children.
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, I was thinking like the power of story. And I think as a country, we need to, you know, like storytelling is empathy. And as a country, we, we need to practice empathy in an honest way. You know, I think as uh, with our current government, I think there tends to be a tendency to bully marginalized voices because their values don't include them or make them vulnerable. So in terms of, I guess, teaching children, I'm, I'm not too sure, but I think an access to resources, I think questioning you know, this is where something like the macarata, the practice of seeing something at that level operate as a truth-telling ceremony, like seeing that operate at a larger level and then the impact that would have in, in I guess, in a, in a schoolroom, I think that would be so inspiring to see. I think that would change who we are as a country and the heart of our country for the good. I guess I could do my own little, like, watch my work. (laughs) For (laughs) any Aboriginal (laughs) people's work, any Aboriginal, any Black fellow's work. Uh, But um, I I think, you know, exposure to different voices, that of, of women, that of like class is a huge issue, like exposing people to values that aren't aspirational and exclusive, I think are very important. But in question to being an ally, a good ally, I mean, I'm just saying this as just as an Aboriginal person, it depends on how you engage. You know, I'm someone who will, like, call up a politician and send um, an email. I don't know if that has a huge impact. We have plenty of politicians to ask here. But um, I think, you know, it's really important to hold your local MPs and, and, and politicians accountable. I'm sorry, Linda and Tanya. No, um, I agree. Um, <laughs> <in> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and be engaged in the democratic process. I think, you know, democracy has been taken out of the people's hands purposely so much or or is given this illusion that it's, it's out of our hands. But we do have a vote. We can make it count. Um, I also think you know listening to Aboriginal people, taking their lead, prioritising their voices. But you know, as a you know as a person, a young person who engages online, you know, some of that hard labour work of having those tough discussions, where I see you know um, non-Aboriginal people answer questions that can maybe be maybe uh, difficult for an Aboriginal person to answer, because you know, for us, the trauma of. The past is so present and the, you know, the trauma of of colonisation is something that we live. I think sometimes doing that type of hard labour, you know, engaging with people around you, having those difficult conversations, just not letting it be Aboriginal people having to ask questions all the time is a really practical way to be supportive and listening and
3: learning. You've been listening to actor and playwright Nakia Louie. She was joined in conversation by Federal Labor MP and Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services, Linda Burney. The online forum was hosted by the Jesse Street Trust, aimed at fostering broader community support for progressing the Uluru Statement from the heart. To take us out tonight, we'll leave you with some more music. Here is Torres Strait Islander musician Mal Power with Island Home, a remix of the song made famous by Chris and first performed by the legendary warumpy band
5: and did it, North Star Island warrior, live in spirit, still with it, had to cut this track to bring it back, put the dirty and the star banner on the map, plant the flag, blue, green, white and black, the five regions connected me to that, in fact, verse for all the islanders across the nation, we like I okay, get we connect to culture like constellations, the vibration, steady, steady, you're rapping, I can hear the island drums keep calling me back, but I move like the ocean, wherever I roam. My power, bring it back home. They say the home is where the heart is. Well, let it be known. And I left my heart back there where the Malu people roam. So I will do this from the heart of my The slogans never forget the first nations people to desert. earth. Warrior at heart, Torres Strait, Islander at birth, must be destiny. Shut the gate when you feel it. Remember this title one blood hidden image. Open opportunities, cause we did it. Lipping life to the fullest and loving every minute. Rap the sunshine, stay far north, it's high. Mike GZ hooked it up. VIC be the spot. NT, hip hop, not respect. New South Wales, ACT. Australia, br- east to the west let the baller take you home island style represent put your soul to the flow love your set represent raise your pride to the sky love it like it's the best unite with music heart and mind reconnect I'm blessed when the music connects unite the music heart and mind reconnect ancestors take me on that quest
3: That was Mal Power with Island Home, his take on the Warrumpy Band Classic. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we'll bring you a focused discussion on the latest Family Matters report into out-of-home care figures and the fight to keep kids in communities. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program, speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.